You're listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly interviews on topics to help entrepreneurs make their first or next step in business the right one. I am your host, Alex Sanfilippo. We've all been in a place where we are the new person. Whether we switch job industries or decided to create a new business for ourselves, it's all something that we're unfamiliar with. And because of this, people tell us it's going to take us years to understand the ropes of whatever it is that we're starting to do. Some would even tell you that it will take 10,000 hours to become the best of the best in the space that you are in. But today's guest has a different idea. He calls it skipping the line. In this episode, we are joined by James Altucher. James is an angel investor, author, stand-up comedian, podcaster, and chess master. Yes, he has done a lot. James tells us in his book titled Skip the Line that we can reach our goals faster if we experiment and think differently about what it is that we are trying to accomplish. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 098. With that said, here is my conversation with my friend James Altucher about skipping the line. James, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. So excited to have you with us today. Alex, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. This book, Skip the Line, is one of the most impactful books I have ever read. And you did a phenomenal job with this. Oh, I appreciate it. I, I'm, 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 that'll make my day. I'm, I'm going with that. I'm hanging on to that quote. <laughs> Love that. That's good. It really is a complete game changer. I'm really excited to get to share it with the Creating a Brand listeners today because I know it's going to be heavily impactful for them as well. So before we get into some specific questions I definitely have for you, I first want to just get the idea of skip the line in the minds of the listeners. So what does it mean to skip the line? Because I'm guessing it's not like jumping in front of somebody at the Hulk at Universal Studios. Like, what does it mean to skip the line? Yeah, it basically means every time, let's say you switch passions, you switch careers, maybe out of necessity because you were laid off from one career and it's not coming back, or maybe because you just got tired of a career, or maybe... You simply, you know, you switch passions or you simply just want to do something else in life. Or maybe you're young and you figure out, oh, I really have a passion for this, even though it's something I haven't studied before or whatever. And you want to do it. And you not only do you want to get good at this new passion, this new potential skill, but you but look, why not make money at it? We should all, you know, we should all make money at the things we love. We shouldn't we shouldn't make money. I mean, we could, but. It's more fun to make money at things you love rather than just have a hobby and then the thing you do 40 hours a week or more is something you hate. But whenever you switch skills, whether you're 20 years old or 30 or 50 or 60 or even older, let's say you switch industries some and, and you want to pursue something that's really interesting and hard and, and something you love, people are going to always say, James, 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 Alex, 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 you can't skip the line. People... People got MBAs doing this. People got degrees doing this. They've been doing it for 20 years. How are you just going to come in and skip the line over all of them and, and make money? Everyone always says that. I've switched careers five or six times. Almost everyone I've ever interviewed on my podcast, hundreds of people, has switched careers and passions and interests. And, you know, everyone has experienced this. Someone has said to them, whether it's a friend, a family member, a professor, a boss, someone has said, you know, James, James, you can't, you, what makes you think you can get good at this? Again, you can't skip the line. People always want to tell you what you can't do. And those are the very people who they can't do it. And so they're a little threatened. Maybe they're a little threatened by you skipping over them you know, or maybe they're sincerely concerned, like we don't want James to 
make a fool of himself or try something and be disappointed. Maybe they're dis- <laughs> right. maybe they're concerned, but you know, maybe it's a mixture of all these things. Uh, who knows what their agendas are? But that fr- I kept hearing that phrase "skip the line" so much. That's why it's the the title of this book. And the important thing is, it's not like you're going to get the first off. Let's say, let's say you wanted suddenly um, switch careers from being. I don't know, uh, a manager of a bowling alley to a hedge fund manager. I'm just making that up. It, it's not, you don't have to be, you don't have to go from, everyone's going to say, well, you're a bowling manager, a bowling alley manager. Why should you be, why should anyone invest in you to be a hedge fund manager? It's, you don't have to be the best in the world. You know, Warren Buffett, let's say, is the best investor in the world. You're not going to be Warren Buffett. And there's this thing called the 10,000 hour rule. It's, it's, it's a bunch of BS, but it basically says, if you want to be the top in the world, like number one or number two or in the top 10, you got to spend 10,000 hours learning something. And there's methods for learning. And that's BS. For First off, to mon- many people make a living at something without being the absolute best in the world. It is good to be, let's say, in the top 1%, but that's a big category. And in the book, Skip the Line, I give lots of techniques to how to go from basically zero to hero and whatever your new passion is. You want to be... Uh, uh, to do something professionally in sports, okay, here's here's how you build the skill set. You want to do something professionally as a hedge fund manager or as an investor, here's all these techniques for how to quickly become in the top 1%, to skip the line. There's a lot of learning techniques, essentially, that they're not shortcuts, but there are techniques that people aren't aware of where that you could learn to be in the top 1% very quickly. Second, and this is what a lot of books don't address, if you if you get good at a skill, you might as well monetize it. And people think, well, how am I going to monetize my interest and passion in origami? Or how am I going to, you know, I'm 45 years old. Uh, how am I going to uh, be a professional basketball player? Well, in the other part of the book, I list techniques for how to basically monetize something in any field at all. And, you know, that's essentially the, the two lanes of the book. And I know... I didn't want to do any academic research. Like I hate all this academic research that says, well, here's how you learn something. Or here's if you if you cross legs, you cross your legs in a meeting and they cross their legs, you can convince them of anything. Research shows all that stuff's BS. I only talk about very, very specific techniques that have worked for me and that I've seen work for, let's say, other people who have been on my podcast. But it definitely every single technique in this book has has worked for me. And and the benefit for me in doing this book is that I was able to kind of identify them and label them. And once you kind of label things and recognize, oh, this is a specific thing that I've been doing. Now, now I'm going to formalize how to, how I do it. It actually was a good exercise for me to, to do this and, and, you know, learn, essentially learn how to learn things and, and learn how to monetize them. Not that I didn't know before, but it was good to kind of formalize them in these techniques. So this brings me to, to a question that I have, and it's, I've been doing this since I learned it. So since you kind of taught this to me, I've been like, you know, I'm skipping the line any chance I get. And I'll get into that more in a minute. But something that I realized is that although I've done this in my SaaS startup and in with my podcast, just the way that I grow both those things, I've gone against conventional wisdom at this point. So like really outside the box type of thing. And I'm not following like the success path, if you will, that most people set out. And quick disclaimer before I get into this, I'm, I have not compromised integrity or done anything that's questionable or b- below bar or anything like that. But I've had a lot of people say, hey, you can't do that or you shouldn't do it or that's not the right way to. And I'm wondering, have you had any criticism along the way as you've made the decision to skip the line yourself? Because I've certainly seen some of that. 
Oh yeah, I mean every single time. I mean, and again, I I agree with you. I I would never. These are not shortcuts like people sometimes think, and nor will I ever do anything unethical to like, you know, jump ahead. It's really like there's when you switch passions, there's a pleasure in learning a new skill and and mastering it. You know, there's there's kind of three foundational principles of of well-being, of positive psychology. One is having a sense of community, uh, which is, you know, friends and, and colleagues that you like and, and so on. The other is um, a feeling of mastery. So you there's a skill that's hard and you master it and, or you learn to master it. And then there's freedom where a majority of the decisions you make uh, are decisions you want to make, not decisions a boss makes for you or a professor or a parent or a family member or whatever. And you know, skipping the line or, or doing what you love to do and making money at it has all these things. So community, if you're, if you're learning a skill and a, and, and a skill that's worth learning, there's other people also learning that skill and you, and you form a community with them and that's pleasurable. You, you speak this hidden language of, of the skill that you're learning and, and monetizing. And of course, freedom comes with monetization, but that feeling of mastery when you're learning a skill and particularly when you're learning using techniques that most people aren't aware of or, or haven't really for you know, turned into a formula for themselves. I think that's really special because you learn very, very quickly and that moves you up the, in the community. And, and you know, and again, well-being is different from happiness. Like, I love television. I could probably watch television all day long, but watching television won't give me community, mastery, or freedom. In fact, it'll give me the opposite of those, even though I love it. And and the, the irony is, is that doing what you love is not necessarily a happy thing. Like, take someone who's a great tennis player, destined to be a professional tennis player, like a high school kid who's destined to one day be in the top 100 tennis players in the world. For that person, he might, he does love tennis, or she loves tennis, but tennis also sucks for that person. Because if you're trying to get good, you're going to end up losing most of the time. And losing to someone who's very competitive and an athlete is not a pleasant experience. You can tell yourself all day long, well, this means I'm learning and I, the more I lose, the more I can learn. That's great and that's good advice and it's also true, but it still feels horrible. That's why you know competitive people try to get better because losing feels so bad. If you never want to lose and feel that pain, then watch TV all day. So that's just a misconception I want to correct is that, you know, all of this stuff is related to there's a, a nuance between well-being and happiness. I'd be perfectly happy watching TV shows like Breaking Bad all day long. But by the way, and I, just to answer your question a little more fully, when I wrote Choose Yourself, some people who had other reasons to not like me uh, would say, oh, this sounds kind of selfish. Are you just choosing yourself? What about other people? Well, if uh, the point I make in the book is that if you're basically sick in bed all the time or if you're unhappy or if you're constantly stressed and anxious, how are you going to be able to be good for other people? It's by, you know, there's the analogy when you're in the airplane and then the and the oxygen mask fall down, put the mask on your face first, even before your own baby, because that's how you best help other people. So it's the same thing here with with being the best you could be, whether it's learning a skill, monetizing it, choosing yourself that that's how you help the world first. It's a great point. I, I really like that. And it actually kind of speaks to me a little bit. I know I probably need a better community around me of people that are doing things in similar ways that I am instead of just following some of the, the more conventional side of things. So that's very helpful for me even. So thank you for that point. Oh, no uh, you know, when I think about skip the line, I think of it as being an, an art form. It requires you to think differently and act differently. 
And if I could explain it in a single word, I'd say creativity is really what it often takes. And in the third chapter of your book, you talk about 10,000 experiments, which I believe to be the key to getting your mindset in the right place to even skip the line in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about what this 10,000 experiments means? Yeah, this was like a revelation to me. And again, it was something that I had been doing, but I hadn't really put a name to it. So when you, and this is really important, like when you put a name to something you're doing, it's it's much easier to to do it then because you know, oh, this is the time when I need to start experimenting. This is the time when I need to um, break down the micro skills. This is the time when I need to do a plus minus equal. So essentially everyone kept saying, 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours of repetition over and over again, and then get feedback and then do it again and again and again. That's not really true. That's not the fastest way to to learn a skill. And and by the way, when I say learn a skill, I'm not saying if you want to be the best, if you want to be a golf professional, you're going to be a golf professional. I'm saying if you love golf, there are a range of skills you can learn that could potentially monetize and all of them could be pleasurable for you. And then you, you figure out which ones you want to learn and how you're going to pursue this and so on. It, it, you have to be flexible in outcome to achieve the kind of happiness and, and career you want to have. Uh, if you focus on just one outcome, you're going to be most of the time disappointed. But with experiments, this is like an obscure example. But I, at one point, about six or seven years ago, I decided I want to do stand-up comedy. Maybe professionally, maybe not. I was already doing a lot of other things professionally. I didn't necessarily need to do stand-up comedy professionally, but I loved it so much. I wanted to get good at it. And everyone kept telling me, give yourself 20 years and you'll get good at it. And I'm like, what? I'm not going to spend 20 years doing this. That's insane. So and people are like, well, you just have to go on stage a lot. And, you know, and it's hard to get on stage. And we're, we've all been doing it for 20 years and we're barely getting on stage. So, again, they were worried about nobody skipping the line over them because they didn't want someone just walking in and, you know, getting on stage when they can't. So. I did an experiment. I had a theory that I could get I could get good at this and get on stage pretty quickly. And so I did a couple of experiments, but one of them was I decided, you know, first off, I decided I needed to get practice with a potentially hostile audience because when you're starting, audiences could be they could not like you and, and they'll feel hostile. And I needed to get faster at making people laugh. So I had a theory on how to do it. I did an experiment where I went on a New York City subway during rush hour. Definitely a hostile audience at that time from right. if someone's going to go on a subway and start telling jokes. And because people are getting on and off the subway very fast, you have to get them to laugh very fast. So I did this for like two hours. I switched cars every stop. And um, uh, it was a great experiment to, A, I got stage time because I was on uh, the subway. And this was like five or six years ago. I will note that some comedy clubs during the pandemic did in fact um, do stand up on the subways cuz all the comedy clubs were closed so it was everybody thought i was insane at the time and now it's like a known thing yeah look at and, that and um uh, and that's the other nature of experiments it's like pretty much when you're doing an experiment probably no one has ever done this before certainly you've never done it before that's like an important qualification and uh so it's the opposite of repetition and probably no one else has ever done it before or else you could have read about it instead of doing it but, you know, in some cases, but the qualities of a good experiment is it should be cheap or free to do. It should take little time to do it because you may have to do many experiments and it should uh, uh, have very little downside and it should have enormous upside. So going on the subway was, you know, like two dollars. Uh, it was easy to do. I just walked down the sub to the subway station and did it. And I had someone videotape it for me so I could, wa you know, watch and learn afterwards watch what happened. 
and uh, it had very little downside. What's the worst case? A bunch of strangers don't laugh. That's the worst case. <laughs> right. Or I get kicked off the subway for some reason. I don't know. And the the upsides were enormous. I could learn something about comedy. I could get stage time. And uh, there were upsides I didn't even realize. I learned how to deal with certain fears because I was terrified of doing it. Once I got on the subway, I almost thought I was it was just a waste of time. There was no way I was going to do it. And then I started doing it. But every time I go on stage for stand-up comedy, I'm also afraid. So it, it was a good experimental way to deal with my fear, fears of performing and, and public speaking and so on. And then there was other weird upsides. Like I'm telling it as a story right now. That was an upside. I didn't think I'd be telling it as a story. And uh, the upside, of course, is I did learn how to deal to some extent with hostile crowds and I got a lot of experience. And uh, there was other weird upsides like, oh, this feels like almost a weird kind of format for a late night talk show. So I pretended that my stand up in the subway was like a, a monologue. And then I had a friend come on, you know, a week later, I had a friend who had just written a book come on and I interviewed him on the subway about his book. And then we interacted with the other members of the subway audience. And I found a guy who was playing garbage cans as drums in the subway station. You know, people busk for money uh, in subway stations. So he became my musical guest. And I videotaped an entire format, a uh, creative format for a late night talk show. And then I pitched it to an agent. And now again, what's the worst case scenario? The agent could reject me, which is what happened. And, but the agent also could have said, you know what, this is really creative. Let's pitch this around to a bunch of TV networks. That could have been the upside and it cost me nothing. And I released it as like a podcast at one point and it gives me another story to tell. So these are all examples of an experiment. I'll give a high end example, like in business. So Richard Branson was a 27-year-old music uh, publisher, and he wanted to start an airline. And everybody says to him, you can't do that. Like, what do you know about airlines other than having flown in a plane? Like, you know, British Airways, the only airline in the UK, and they're, they're a government-run monopoly. How, who are you? You're a 27-year-old music publisher. So a lot of people told him he can't skip the line. A lot of people told him he can't do it. And then so the next day, he calls up Boeing and says, hey, um, uh, I, I want to start an airline. Can I borrow a, a plane, preferably a 747? And they're like, what? Who are you? And he's like, well, I'm a 27-year-old music magazine publisher in England. And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, you want to buy an you want to borrow a 747? He said, yeah, for a year. Can you do it? And they're like, no way. And he persuaded them. This was like an experiment for him. Can I start an airline? And he, and he said, well, the first step would be not to make a business plan and try to raise a, a billion dollars, which is what you would need to start an airplane. But first step is why don't I cost me nothing to just call Boeing and ask them for a plane? So let's, let's do an experiment and see if they'll give me a plane. And he, you know, he had persuasion ability, which by the way, I have a chapter on in the book. Persuasion ability is an important part of, of skipping the line. And he said to them, listen, uh, because there's a monopoly in England, you have no pricing pressure and your biggest competitor Airbus is winning the game in, in England. So if there's another airline uh, that's competing, you now could get in the game and, and compete. And they're like, hmm, maybe you're right. And so they did lend him a plane on the condition that he get a landing strip to take off from and a landing strip to land on. So he found, he convinced Gatwick Airport in England and JFK in New York to give him landing strips and 
boom, he had a plane and he started, you know, Virgin Atlantic. He started an airline. Amazing. And that was all done because, look, if those experiments failed, we never would have heard about Virgin Atlantic. He never would have done it, but he would have done something else. So, you know, Richard Branson and many entrepreneurs experiment all the time and we only see the end results. They probably they also do many experiments that, you know, don't work out as well. But again, very little downside. The worst case scenario for him was that Boeing laughed in his face, which they did anyway, and they wouldn't lend him an airline, uh, an airplane. And okay, he'd go on to the next idea. And that's why experimenting is is so interesting, because the upside is he, he created one of the best airlines on the planet, despite having no experience, and he sold it for three or four billion dollars to Alaska Air a few years ago. Hey, Alex Sanfilippo here, and I want to take a quick moment to intentionally serve the world with you. Here's what I want you to do. Think of the one person you know who would most benefit from listening to this episode today. Now, I want you to send it to them, but also include an encouraging note explaining why you share this episode with them specifically. By doing this, you're helping me grow this podcast, and you're also adding value to the people you care about. With that said, thank you for your continued support. It means the world to me. And now let's get back to today's episode. I love this whole concept of, of generating these ideas, right? These little experiments and things like that. You and me both now, I know I, I learned it from you. I keep a book and every day I write in this book that now I say probably has millions of dollars of ideas in it. And some I'm pursuing, others I haven't yet. That's the, kind of the next question I want to go into here. The act of doing this is very healthy. And you even talk about in the book, you need to do, not think. Like you actually have to start trying to do some of these things. How do you decide which ideas are good to pursue and which ones are potentially just going to waste your time? Because most of us, we're still trying to make a little bit of money as well. So we can't use all of our time just exploring random ideas. How can you decide, hey, this one should just sit in this book and look pretty, or this is one that maybe I should do something with? And maybe a practical example that would be helpful as well. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question because particularly, let's say, in the entrepreneurial world, validating an idea is very, very critical, very critical. Because people say ideas are a dime a dozen, execution is everything. But people forget that execution is just a subset of execution ideas are a subset of ideas. How do you know how to execute? Execution is, as they mentioned, is, is, is everything. It's harder than just coming up with basic ideas because execution, you have to do things. So I'll give you a concrete example. Like one friend of mine wanted to, she had an idea of a specific product that she wanted to automate. And she described it to me and I thought like, okay, this is a pretty good idea. And she said, okay, I'm raising $2 million at like a $5 million valuation. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do with the $2 million? And she says, well, I'm going to spend six months using software engineers to build the product. And then I need some money for employees and marketing the product so I could, you know, start the business. And I'm like, well, that sounds like a horrible way to do this. And again, execution's a spectrum. It's not like everybody, it's like, okay, now I just need to execute and everybody knows what to do. There's bad execution and there's good execution. And I said, well, what if this is a bad idea? I mean, we both, you've just told it to me and it sounds like a good idea, but I don't really know. And you have no ability to judge because it's your idea. So people have a tendency to overestimate the value of their ideas. They, so it's, I call it smoking crack bias. Like everybody <laughs> smokes crack on their own yeah. business ideas. I've, I've been there many times. <laughs> I mean, I've been, my, my main concern every single time I start a business, my main concern is, Am I smoking crack? I ask this every single day. And like, for instance, I'm, uh, I haven't started a business in a while, but I'm, I'm building a software product right now. 
And I'm thinking to myself, this solution that I'm building feels to me kind of obvious. Why isn't anybody doing it? And I looked at the sort of mini competitors to the point where me and my partner in this, we were looking at the LinkedIn resumes of all the programmers and developers and trying to figure out why couldn't they do what we were about to start doing. And like, that's the level, you know, I'll, I'll do so many things to try to validate an, an idea. But I told my friend, listen, your idea seems good, but here's an idea for how for you to validate it. Why don't you find a couple of clients and do it manually what you were planning on automating with software engineers? So, you know, it'll take you a little bit longer, but not that much longer. Um, now, manually can't scale. It's not a business. That was the main problem. That's why you want to automate things, not because automating and automation doesn't get you everything you know, like, like you can usually do most things manually that other people do that, that most people do in an automated way. Like if you told me find the best 10 websites about motorcycles, you know, Google automates it for you, but I can also maybe call up friends in the motorcycle industry and say, Hey, can you tell me the 10 best websites for motorcycles? So then I'm doing something manually. Now that will take longer, but again, we're just validating an idea. So, I told my friend, call up a couple of your friends, ask, tell them what you want to do for them manually and you'll do it for free or maybe do it for a hundred dollars. Just see what they're willing, if they're willing to pay. And then as you're doing it manually, A, you'll learn nuances that you didn't expect. Like for instance, when I did, just as an example, when I did that stand-up comedy on the subway, you know, one nuance was, is that I would realize, hey, this might be better as a late night TV show that takes place on a subway. It's kind of a quirky format. So you'll learn things that you didn't necessarily know. And that will be helpful when you eventually build the software product. And you'll, uh, uh, you'll see if you create something that people love and they're only going to buy something that they love. And you'll, you'll see if you create, like if they say, Oh, well, yeah, I could have just done this down the street. Then you'll see that you'll learn more about the industry. Maybe that, you know, so a simple experiment doing, doing an idea manually for some friends, is a good way to start validating an idea as opposed to raising $2 million, which by the way, that takes at least six months. If, even if your idea is the best idea in the world, it's how long Uber took to raise their money. And then you need to, like, like she said, build the software. It doesn't take six months. It takes at least a year. And, and then, you know, coming up with enough marketing ideas that also could take a year. And so she was underestimating how long execution would take. And, and yet manually within a few weeks, she was able to decide that, okay, this is not really that great an idea. And she stopped working on it. So, so again, but through experiments, by doing something manually, you're experimenting, you're, you're saying, okay, I'm going to offer this as a service. You know, one time I invested in a company that was a Facebook ad agency. So Facebook was just kind of starting to blossom. This is in 2007. And companies hadn't yet gone on Facebook really, even though clearly everybody in the world was moving towards this platform, just like in the nineties, they moved towards the web and then corporations caught on. And so this person correctly figured, and I figured as an investor that just like web advertising was going to be a huge thing, Facebook advertising and a corporate presence or a commercial presence on Facebook would become a big thing, but we didn't really know. And we didn't really know what corporations would need on Facebook. So my friend who started this agency, he started it as a service business, like an ad agency, where he would visit clients, pitch them ideas, 
uh, you know, oh, let's do some game. You're you're Pepsi Cola. Let's do some games about Pepsi, or let's, uh, you know, create a community around Pepsi, or let's have other people. You know, let's use a Facebook group to crowdsource ad ideas or whatever. He he came up with a bunch of ideas, and he saw which ones they liked and which ones they didn't, and which ones worked and which one didn't. It was when you're running a service business, he was profitable from the beginning, and then he and then corporations were getting on Facebook. They loved it. He, he saw which products they loved. He automated them all. And then he went from a service business to a software as a service business, which has a much higher valuation. He sold the company to Salesforce.com for $800 million in 2012. And that was a good, a good idea. And he, he experimented at first by doing all the services manually instead of trying to automate them and guessing what companies like Pepsi or American Express or whoever would want. He, would, he did it manually for about a year or so. Uh, making a lot of money doing it, but then automating it. And that's, you know, a good way to use experiments to to validate an idea. I, I really like this. And you have so many different examples in the book. And I've, I've heard you give other examples as well that are just really inspiring. And I think what this does, it gives people the freedom to step out of their thoughts. Because so many of us, we have these ideas that we'd love to try, but we think the traditional route of, man, I have to get funding. I don't even know anything about hiring software people. I'd have to do this, this, and this all these different things, right, that kind of get us stuck in our own minds. But what you're doing here is you're saying do a small experiment. What's the most manual, affordable way that you can try something just to validate it? Because here's the thing, you and I have both, everyone has seen at this point, there have been plenty of good ideas, air quotes there, that have failed. And they have raised tens of millions of dollars, not billions of dollars along the way. And there wasn't actually a market for it. People weren't interested in it because they did not validate it. They just went straight into Oh, this is a good idea. Let's let's do it. And I think many of us we hide in our thoughts because we see these massive companies failing instead of us just being able to step out and say, you know what, I'm going to try this in a Facebook group, or I'm going to step into a subway yeah. and just try this and see how it goes. But by the way, even there's even companies that have had the best product on the market that have also failed, and there's there's reasons behind that. It's not like just luck or it's a shame that this failed when it's the best product. But I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But you know, I gave an example about business, but there's example, you can make an example with anything. Like, have you seen, this is a, there's a very, this is a kind of a, a, a trope on YouTube where people make a movie trailer over something they like, but they don't make the movie. And, um, but they just make a movie trailer for fun. Have you, like, you remember the TV show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Yeah. yeah with Will Smith. That was like Will Smith's big vehicle when he started. Um, someone made the most amazingly beautiful trailer for a reboot series or a movie of Fresh Prince of the Be of Bel-Air. It was like gritty. It was, you know, you see the Philadelphia ghetto and he's getting in trouble that, you know, the, the, the Will Smith character and, you know, then nobody likes him in LA and he's dealing with social issues and trauma in, in LA when he's finally shipped out there. And, it, and there was music like rap music in the background. And, um, and there was a little bit of a, there was a violent tinge to it. It was this beautiful, beautiful trailer. And okay, the guy spent a little bit of time doing it, but not much, not as much time as it would take to make a movie. Maybe he spent a week or so. And I, th I think I read in an interview, he spent a week or so. And then it was so great, it got millions of views. So he made money on, on the YouTube video. And then Will Smith wanted to meet with him and talk about making a reboot for wow. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And for all I know, they're doing it. I, have no, I didn't follow the story after that, but I probably watched that trailer at least 10 to 20 times. It was so beautiful. And, you know... That's that's what experiments do. If he had said, if, if two things, if he had maybe written a script 
Will Smith wouldn't care. He probably gets scripts for reboots of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air every day. Like he doesn't, that's not going to attract his attention. Even if it's a better script than what this guy was doing. This guy, notice this guy just made a trailer. He didn't even make a storyline. So, so Will Smith get, might get great scripts every day. And this is related to the sometimes better doesn't win. But this guy was the only person doing this amazing trailer of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And it was so unique in its approach that even though there was no story behind it, just because trailers don't have stories, really, uh, uh, it attracted the attention of, of Will Smith to maybe produce this. And, you know, he didn't have to also, the other thing he didn't do was have to make an entire movie, which would cost millions right. of dollars. So that's, again, he just did, maybe he's done other trailers that weren't as good and we don't know about them, but we know about this one because it was huge and it was big. And you do enough experiments, you're going to have some experiments with very unusual upside like he made money on youtube ads he had will smith call him you can't expect you can't know the outcomes but he obviously loved what he was doing you could see it in the way this is filmed that he loved it growing up me and my brothers were huge fans of fresh prince so i'll definitely be watching that trailer right when we're done recording here today but to reinforce the point that you're making here this guy didn't follow what other people were doing instead of working with an agency to somehow contact will smith or by mailing him a script he did something totally different. He separated himself by being the only one who created a trailer. We could all really learn a lot from this story. So, so this is the whole thing. But here's, here's the thing that's interesting is that if you're the only, and this is related to some of the skip the line techniques, and I'll, I'll make the connection in a second. If you're the only person doing something, then you're special. So I'll give a very specific example involving my daughter. My daughter applied to 20 or 30 colleges last year. And she didn't get accepted by any because she was in how many, how many 18 year old girls with a, a minus averages and pretty good SAT scores and pretty good after school clubs and pretty good sports. How many of them are applying to every college from the New York city or, or let's say New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey area. So there's like a million people applying to college like that. How could the admissions counselors tell who is 20% better? They're all within 20% of each other in terms of all these ways that admissions counselors rank people. But how can you really tell who's 20% better or 10% better or God forbid 30% better? You can't tell. And so I said to my daughter, well, let's, let's do some experiments and see which things you're passionate about and which things you're not. And we want you to be not just better, which you probably are, but no one could tell. We want you to be the only. So we tried lots of different things of how she could be the only. And I'll give the specific example that worked is that I gave her, uh, arranged for her to have race car lessons on a racetrack and a prof and professional race car driver gave her lessons. By the way, this wasn't expensive. It was, you know, they have these schools all over the place, but nobody thinks to look for them. And uh, uh, she took a bunch of lessons, you know, for many weeks or months over a period of months and uh but it was not that many lessons in between it was spread out and she got her professional race car driving license she participated in a race came in second and guess what much to my chagrin because i don't think kids should be going to college uh she got into every single school she applied and she just accepted that she's going to go to duke university a school which would not have even looked at her application a year ago the only difference is that she had race car driving on there. And how many young girls you know who are, have participated in professional race car races? Not that many. So she became 
she stood out. She went in a different pile than all the other people from the metropolitan area, and she got in everywhere she applied. And that was the only difference in her application. She became the only instead of just better. James, first off, kudos to you for investing in your daughter so much. She truly stood out in a very unique way and enabled her to really skip the line as we're talking about here today. I love this mindset and way of thinking. I know it's already served me very well in my life and business, and I hope that it's doing the same for the listeners today as well. James, this has been such a great conversation. I'd actually love the opportunity to bring you back next week because I have so many more questions to ask you. I know that they're just going to continue to be so valuable for the listeners of Creating a Brand. Would you be okay with that? Yeah, thanks so much. This is, you ask great questions. I appreciate it, man. So next week, we'll be sharing another episode together that will be equally as valuable. So until next week, James, thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks, Alex. James has one of the most brilliant entrepreneurial minds that I've ever had the opportunity to speak to. And I meant every word that I said in this interview about his book being one of the most impactful that I've ever read. Because James shared so much wisdom this episode, I'm actually going to bring him back next week for another episode to talk more about utilizing our skills and generating more creative ideas. It's a great continuation of this episode, so I highly recommend checking that out next week. James, thank you again for being a guest and sharing your vast experience with us all today. To purchase a copy of James Altucher's book, Skip the Line, and for a link to his podcast, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 098. Thank you as always for listening, and I'll be bringing you another Masterclass episode with James next week.